Well, thank you once again for being here this morning, and I invite you to turn uh, in your Bible or on your device to Acts uh, chapter 6, beginning at verse 8, and also into uh, chapter uh, 7. In fact, the entirety of chapter 7. And uh, just uh, by way of a a word, uh, I know that that's quite a lengthy portion, my intention this morning is not to cover every verse. I'm just going to mention some highlights as we bring together this uh, portion of Acts. I encourage you to study it on your own if you've not done so already, because I'm sure that there are a lot more lessons and things for us to to realize uh, based on what Stephen said uh, in this particular context. As we've been going through the book of Acts, we uh, noted that the Acts is the record of the early days of the church. Uh, and that uh, we've already seen that the good news uh, of the gospel, the message concerning Jesus Christ, is not always received with open arms. In fact, we are part of a continuing spiritual battle as we follow Jesus Christ in faith, as we are living and speaking the truth. We've already seen that the enemy is relentless and will use anything. We saw last time, Uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, that complaints from within uh, could have become a stumbling block to the ministry of the gospel in the church. It could have severely hampered uh, the gospel. And yet, a God-given solution uh, resulted in needs being met, and the church continued to grow. And then we noted in that context that they did select seven individuals to head up the ministry, uh, two of which we know something about, Stephen and Philip. Uh, You could have say say that these were an early example of deacons who were serving in the church. Now, we're going to look at this morning one of those two that we know a little bit more about. We'll find out about Philip next time. But Stephen was one of those seven that was selected to take over the ministry and the leadership of serving in the daily needs. And we're told in chapter 6 and verse 5 that he had a good reputation, he was full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. And when it speaks of his character in that way, this being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit was his Godward relationship. He had faith towards God and he was yielded to the Spirit of God in his life. Chapter 6 and verse 8 says that he was full of grace uh, and of power. And this was his relationship to those around him. If you would, his manward relationship, um, his character, his demeanor, his behavior uh, was one of, of grace. And the Lord used him significantly. It's, it's one of power. We're told that he was doing great signs and wonders among the people. This is the first time that we hear of a person beyond the apostles actually being used by God in a supernatural way with miracles and with supernatural signs and wonders. And it was all generated by the Spirit of God. This was an indication of the Spirit's work in this context, confirming the message that God was giving through His believing people. I find it interesting that His name, Stephen, Uh, comes from the Greek word stephnos, which means a crown. Uh, And we're told later in Scripture, James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10, 
that in the context of, of trials and even martyrdom, that those who are faithful to the Lord will, in, to the end, will receive a crown of life. So his name certainly uh, fit him. As I've already said, I don't anticipate uh, going through uh, every uh, single uh, verse here uh, this morning, but I do want to say when we look at Stephen just in general, uh, I ask myself the question, do I have faith and am am I yielded to the Spirit of God in my life, in my relationship with him? And then secondly, in my relationship with others, do I exhibit grace and do I show that God's power is at work in and through me? transforming my life, that Jesus not only saved me, but Jesus helps me and he's shaping my life to be the person that he wants me to be. So you have here in verses 9 through 15 the accusations that were uh, uh, levied against him. They were charges from without. We note here in the context that it was stirred up by this group called the freedmen. These were Jewish uh, Uh, individuals who were captured by Rome in one of the battles, but ultimately were given freedom. Uh, And they they, uh, had certain liberties that were bestowed upon them by the Roman government of that time. At some point, they got expelled from Rome, uh, probably under one of the edicts that uh, Rome issued, and they came to Jerusalem and started their own synagogue. You'll see also that there's others mentioned here, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, people from Sicilia and Asia Minor. These were all Jewish people who were from different places and backgrounds. And what I see here in verses 9 and 10, that there was united opposition against um, uh, Stephen. And isn't it interesting that people from various backgrounds, you know, even if they disagree on a lot of other points, will be united in this one thing, that they're united against God and against God's message and his son Jesus Christ. United to do evil. Different backgrounds, yet united in opposition to God, his man, and his message. And this is true of the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world is united against God and against his Christ and against his word and against truth and against his people. And so they take actions. And notice this, that if you read this carefully, Luke was very careful in his history to make sure that these were all factual things. These were not things that were exaggerated or made up. But notice this, they secretly instigated people in this context. They were coaching others in what they needed to say, and they were saying that he was blaspheming Moses and God. He was blaspheming the Old Testament, the law, and Jehovah God. And then they stirred up the people, the crowds, the elders, the scribes, the leadership, the people in general. And they become, they become physical in what they do. They assault him. They accost him. And they drag him before the council, which was the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was made up of uh, uh, the Sadducees, which was a Jewish party, and the Pharisees. Uh, and the Sadducees were in the majority. They were the ones that held to only the first five books uh, of the Bible, uh, the Old Testament. They had no belief in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They had no belief in the afterlife. And they were kind of the ruling body, if you would, or the ruling majority, if you would, that was part of this Sanhedrin. I find it interesting that this was the same council that condemned the Lord Jesus Christ to death. And in verse 13, we're told that they, they set up false witnesses. This was a setup. Does that sound familiar with things that you know about today in our culture and in our world? 
And you notice that they exaggerate. This man never ceases to speak against. Exaggeration. They lie. They're setting up false witnesses. They use his words out of context. We heard him say, well, wait a minute. Did he really say that? Or are you walking away with a misunderstanding of what he said? And then they malign Jesus. They say, this Jesus of Nazareth. But it's not said in a reverential way. It's this Jesus of Nazareth. And they're maligning the name of Jesus Christ. And, and they, it shows their disdain for Jesus Christ his person, and they try to discredit the messenger. And they try to, to make uh, things appear that their whole way of life is at stake. This Jesus of Nazareth is going to come and he's going to change the, the law of Moses and destroy this place. Doesn't it sound like things you hear today? Now, it may not be always on a religious world, but in the political world that seems to be true. Our whole way of life is at stake if we don't do something. That's what they're saying here with Stephen in this context. So it should not surprise you and me that we face opposition as Christ followers just by trying to live for Jesus' sake, but even more so when we try to present the gospel and present truth to people because that's all that Stephen was doing. He was presenting them the truth, but these individuals didn't want to hear it. But I say, does this reaction of these people surprise you? Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 22, that you should expect this kind of opposition as his followers. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you. If it's received me, it will receive you. You're not greater than your master. If he was rejected and he was the embodiment of truth and only did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did what was perfect, how much more so you and me as his followers? But don't let this fear of reprisal keep you from living wholeheartedly for Jesus' sake. In fact, uh, let me say uh, as a follow-up to that, don't let the unbelieving world define you as a believer of Christ either. In fact, don't let the world define you or the church or even the gospel message and what it should be. In fact, one of the ways that we can do that is to prove them wrong. Titus chapter 2, verses 2 through 14 particularly in verse 10, says, make the teaching of God our Savior attractive in every way. And if you read that context, you'll see it's how we live as Christ followers. We're to adorn the gospel of God, to make it attractive in such a way that, that when they speak evil of you, they really have no basis for it because you're living a God-honoring life. Now, Stephen uh, notice here in verse 15 his appearance uh, as it is described. It says those who were in the council were gazing at him. As all these accusations are flying and, and emotions are high and, and the courtroom drama is just it, it tense in every way, they look at him and lo and behold, his face looks like the face of an angel. They're straining as, as they look at him and it's like something's something's different about this man. They stared at him. And it says all who were in the council were doing this. You know, one of the people that were part of that council that day was Saul of Tarsus that we're introduced to here in this context. And his face was like the face of an angel. Some have said that this uh, was indicating that he was aglow with the holiness and the glory of God. Can you think of anybody else uh, in Scripture whose face was aglow with 
with the presence of God? Moses. The very one that they're accusing him of trying to to, to, uh, eradicate and change and, and discount. And God is giving his approval to his servant by allowing their very demeanor and their face to reflect the glory of God. Does your face show that you're a Christ follower? I don't mean that there's necessarily a halo around you. There's no, that's a misnomer. There are no halos. <laughs> but it, does your face show that you are a Christ follower? Is there a joy? Is there a peace? Is there a sense of, of the, the goodness and the grace of God upon your life that it's written all over your face? That people can see that? My mother used to say to me, and I'm still learning this, you need to smile more. See, I grew up in a very authoritarian kind of home and things were, you know, you didn't, you know, old country kind of thing. When you all got together for a, for a photograph, you never smiled. In fact, we did, a, we did a joking photograph of all my brothers one time. It says, let's all pose like the, the people uh, from back in the old country. We all stood there going, you know, all sour faces. My mother used to say, Smile. Actually, gave me a plaque that I actually lost when I was away at Bible college, and it said, Serve the Lord with gladness. And it had all these verses about the joy of the Lord. You know, the joy of the Lord should be on upon our face. Not that we're always giggling and happy, that's not what I mean. But the very presence of God should, should surround the people of God to distinguish us. To the degree that Peter even says that people look at your life and they say, What's different about you? And here in this context, where all of these accusations are flying and he is on trial, and you would think that he would be agitated. He, there's a serenity and a peace that comes from God. In fact, the approval of God is on him as my servant. It's like God's spotlight is shining on him. So how would Stephen respond? How would you respond if you were put on trial for your faith? In fact, the question that the high priest asks is, are these things so? They give him opportunity to answer And he uses that platform, and chapter 7 pretty much is his defense. But you know, if you read it carefully, you'll notice that his defense is not about himself. He takes the time to refer to the whole history of Israel in this sermon, this message, this testimony. Now, I'm not going to, as I said, take the time to go through everything, but I want to highlight some things that were part of this ready defense that Stephen had. And it shows us the importance of our having in our hearts and in our lives, the Word of God, ready to answer those who ask the question of why we have hope. Or when we're put on trial, we're able to answer. And notice how he did this. He knew his audience because they were all schooled in the Old Testament. They knew these things. And he begins here by um, highlighting four periods in Israel's history and mentions six significant patriarchs or God's chosen leaders in the past. And notice he starts here in verses 1b through 8 with Abraham. And he says, the God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. What's significant about that? God appeared to Abraham, and God appeared to Abraham when he was an idol worshiper, when he was a pagan. He wasn't in the land of Israel. And God appeared to him and called him and chose him to be the one that would be used by God to not only father children, but father a nation, and be the father of many nations, out of which would come the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately, the Messiah, the chosen one. God called him when he was an idol worshiper. God saved him 
God made promises to him, and God made him the founder of the nation that would bring forth ultimately the Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I see here is that God's plan is much bigger than just one person. It's much bigger than one nation. It's much bigger than even the church because ultimately, when the Lord returns and everything is, is brought under the headship and lordship of Christ, it is universal. It is not limited to one time or one place or one people. Then he mentions in verses 9 through 19, this man Joseph. This man Joseph. God gave Joseph some dreams, did he not? Did his brothers like those dreams, by the way? They didn't like it. In fact, they didn't like Jacob's favor, which is it was his father, upon the son. And therefore, it says here concerning Joseph, they were jealous of Joseph, verse 9, and they sold him into Egypt. Imagine that. Imagine selling your own brother into slavery. Because that's what they did. They hated him that much. But you know, God, that didn't thwart the plan of God, the purpose of God. What happened with Joseph? The next verse says, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Imagine that. He goes into Egypt as a slave and becomes second in command of the country from the prison to the pinnacle. Only God can do that. Only God can do that because God's plans will not be thwarted. They will not be stopped. His purposes will not be stopped by anyone or any action that is taken. And notice, God was with him. That's another principle I want you to see here. God was with him. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia when he appeared to him. God was now with Joseph when he was in Egypt and we're going to see that over and over again. God was with all his people, every place that they were. God's not limited and confined to a, to a place, to a locality. In fact, some people mistakenly say sometimes, you know, I've never been to church or it's been years or, you know, they, they know that they should be right with God and they say, if I came into that building, the roof would fall in. No, it won't. Because you're in the presence of God whether you're in this building or not. And when we're here, God's presence is here among his people. But when we leave, we don't leave the presence of God because God goes with each one of us. And we're always in the presence of God. Now, it's kind of interesting. They rejected Joseph. They, 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 they cast him out as, as, as one that they did not want to hear from. But lo and behold, the second time that they appear before Joseph, the story tells us that he revealed himself to his brothers. That's a, that's a picture and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first time he came into his, this world, the Israelite nation rejected him. They didn't want to hear from him. But you know what? When he comes a second time, Romans chapter 11, they're going to receive him. He's going to reveal himself to him. So the people of Israel then go down to Egypt. And then God raises up Moses because the children of Israel became slaves in the nation of Israel. Uh, and uh, Moses is, is referred to in verses 20 through 43. And lo and behold, here it is again. Did you notice the pattern? God raises up Moses. Moses goes out to deliver his people, and he's doing it in the arm of the flesh by his own strength. And, and his, his Hebrew brothers don't understand that. And they reject him. And they say, who made you a ruler over us? God did. 
And did you notice that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, which he was in Midian at Mount Sinai? That was a different location. God appeared. And yet they rejected him. And notice it says here, when God appeared to Moses and gave him his call, he says, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. That's verse 33. Every place that God is, is sanctified and made holy. God is not limited to a place. And notice this. He says here, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. In fact, Moses is the one who said to us and to the world, God is going to raise up unto you a prophet like unto me. You will listen to him, Deuteronomy chapter 18. God is going to raise up another one like Moses, but even greater than Moses. And you need to listen to him because if you don't listen to this one that God is raising up as his prophet, his spokesman, you'll be cut off from among the people. In other words, you'll be lost. That was a reference to Jesus Christ who was God's prophet. God's final word to mankind. And notice this. He tells them here and shows them here that they refused to obey and they rejected God and ultimately they worshipped idols. If you continue to read on uh, in, in these uh, verses here, you'll see that when they were in the, in the wilderness and God was with them, remember that there was the pillar uh, of fire by night and the cloud of pillar during the day to show the presence of God and he provided for his people in the wilderness. He was with them. But you know what? In their hearts, they weren't surrendered to the Lord because God says here, I see beyond your external things that you're doing. In fact, when Moses was up getting the law, what did they do? This guy's been gone a long time. Aaron, we need a God that can go before us. And they made a cow and started to worship it and said, here, this o Israel is the God who brought you out of Egypt. They created idols. And that idolatry and the worship of false gods and the works of their own hands didn't end there, even though God repeatedly, repeatedly tried to, 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 to discipline out of them that, that idolatry. Because God goes on to say here through the prophet, and he's quoting Amos in verse 42, that God was going to one day carry them away to Babylon, beyond Damascus, it says in the prophet Amos, chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. And he says, what were you worshiping in the, in the, in the, in the, in the tabernacle when you were doing all these things? You weren't worshiping me, you were worshiping false gods, Moloch and Rephim and the images that you made and the hosts of heaven. Idolatry was really in their heart. And you know, if we're not careful as believing people, we can become an idolatrous people. We can set up an image, a false image of what we think God is like, and that becomes the ruling, governing factor of our lives when it has no basis in Scripture or in truth or in reality. It's interesting that John, who wrote his letter, the last thing that he said to believing people is, guard yourself from idols. Watch out for idols in your life. And an idol is anything that replaces God in your life or in mine. So God's plan was bigger than just one person or one nation. God was with his people in all these places. But you know, God also gives strength and weakness. That's seen in, in, in both Abraham, both in Joseph, and in Moses. God gives strength in weakness. Remember that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, 
that he was given this vision and he became weak and he had a thorn in the flesh and God says to him, my strength is perfected in weakness. And what that weakness did was drive the Apostle Paul to the throne of grace to trust the Lord, to depend upon him for strength in the midst of trials. And here, this 40 years in the wilderness, God provided for his people and it shows that God enables his people to endure trials. God enables his people to endure trials. Well, after Moses, the, the tabernacle, that tent of meeting, is brought into the land of promise in the book of Joshua. Uh, and, and then uh, he, uh, Stephen speeds up his history lesson and says, and then there was David, and then there was Solomon. And you remember David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And Solomon, his son, was actually the one who built it. And it's kind of interesting because there's a contrast between a tabernacle, a tent, and a, t- and a temple. You know what the difference is? One is mobile, can be moved around at the direction of God. One is permanent, and it's fixed. It's set in place. And see, what happened was, in verses 47 through 50, Even by the words of Solomon, he reminded them that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. God is not limited to a location and to a place. They had enshrined and ensconced God in the temple and limited it in that place. Remember, that was part of the charge. He's going to destroy this temple as though somehow he's he's somehow going to destroy God if he destroys the temple. And then also the law of God. You know, the Old Testament, as we read uh, it carefully, really was a foreshadowing. And it was pointing forward to something God was doing. And the law, even though it is holy and it is perfect, was never meant to be the final word to mankind or to the nation of Israel. There was a greater word that was coming in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he's that final revelation uh, to humanity and to the world. So in verses 51 to 53, he applies the truth. Now I'm going to read this. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, and you have now betrayed and murdered him, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Boy, you talk about applying truth. Someone might read that and they say, Stephen, Stephen, tone it down a little bit. Tap it down. You're getting a little bit too carried away here. Don't you know that that's going to agitate them if you tell them that? But you know that it says here, right here, in this text, in the next verse, verse 55, excuse me, that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen did not go off script, if you would, of what God wanted him to say. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and was being directed by the Spirit of God to take the truth of their own history and apply it to them and was applying it to them and they were under trial because it brought an indictment against them. They were guilty. And it's been the whole history of Israel that they've rejected God's 
person, they rejected God's plan, and they've replaced it with their own thoughts and ideas. And it's exactly what these Jewish leaders in representing the nation were doing in that day. They had, they had seen the law as being absolute and permanent and remaining forever and God's final word, and they confined God to a building and to a place. And that was their own teaching. And notice this. He's saying you're stiff-necked, which means you're rebellious. You're uncircumcised in heart and in ears. You know what that means? You go through the outward ritual of, of circumcision, which shows that you belong to God, but in your heart, you're not really following God. You're rebellious. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. There you have it. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. Be careful, Christian. Because we can be guilty of the same thing in our own hearts, not being surrendered to God, but having a heart that's unmoved in the direction that the Spirit of God is wanting us to go. And notice this. All through this, he's been talking about our fathers, our fathers, our fathers, our fathers. When he gets to the application, he says, your fathers and you. See, they were saying he was the one that was the blasphemer and rejecting God and his ways. Masterfully, Stephen turns the tables on them and says, you are the ones. In fact, the most ex greatest example of that is you've rejected the righteous one. Who is he talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same counsel that condemned Jesus to death. And notice this. How do you think they're going to respond to that? You know, he's got a point. That's not what it says. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Can't take it any longer. And notice this. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God gave him uh, an insight and he, and he saw, looked into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw the glory of God and he didn't keep it to himself. Someone would say, don't say anything more. Your life is on the line. And notice what he says here. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is the same counsel, again, that condemned Jesus to death. And when Jesus had said, Hereafter, you're going to see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory, they knew that they, he was talking about Jesus. They didn't need to say his name. That was his favorite way of describing himself as the Son of Man. Not only identifying himself with humanity, but Daniel chapter 7 being that one that is deity. And that was the final straw, if you would. Verse 57 says, They cried out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, they rushed together at him, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, stoning was uh, uh, what the way that the Jewish people were given by God to uh, pronounce a judgment and an execution upon those who blasphemed, against those who broke the Sabbath, against those who uh, uh, committed adultery, uh, against those who blasphemed the name of God and broke His law with a high hand. And they cast Him out of the city and they stoned Him. And notice this, it says, and, they laid, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Someone would, might look at that and read that and say, what a waste. He took it a little too far and he lost his life. But you know what? Stephen was the first uh, Christian martyr. And at that point of death, when he was about to end his earthly journey and step into eternity, he saw Jesus. I have a quote that, that is mentioned here by uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, great preacher of, is now with the Lord. He says, what, what was it, why was it that Jesus was standing there? What, what did that represent? And he just writes this, I believe God sometimes gives his dying saints a quick preview of the coming bliss. We frequently hear of bedside scenes where a believer is living out his final moments on earth. For an instant, his eyes open, he, look, he or she looks heavenward, raises his arm as though to touch the unseen and say, oh, look, it's Jesus. And then the lip fo limp form drops back into bed. Has that person really seen Jesus? Has Jesus come to welcome his tired saint to glory? Uh, Barnhouse doesn't want to be definitive, but he says, who can say this is not so? Surely it was true of Stephen. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, for all believing people, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And at the moment of death for the believer, for the saint, Saints, because we're in Christ, the Lord comes to receive his own. You know, elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus is always described as seated at the right hand of the Father. Here he's standing. Someone has looked at that and said, wait a minute, why is he standing? Uh, one of the possibilities is he's, he's standing, and this is my brother and I thought about early on in our early days as believers, that, that it's almost as if the Lord stood up because he was outraged. A righteous indignation at what was, what was happening on earth. I don't know if it was exactly that. You know, Jesus stood, even as Saul was a witness to his execution, Jesus was standing with his servant, Stephen. But I think that, that most of all, uh, his standing, as I've already suggested, is that he came to welcome his redeemed child home. Second Peter uh, chapter 1 uh, and, and verse 11 tells us this, that we are given a uh, grand entrance into heaven by the redemptive work of Christ. NIV says a rich welcome. Um, the Christian standard version says an, an entrance richly provided. And the Amplified Bible puts it this way, that we are given an abundant entrance into the presence of God. And notice here, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knew where he was going when he drew his last breath. Do you know that for sure this morning? 
Even as a Christ follower, are you confident that when you draw your last breath, you're able to say with full confidence, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit? Not because of anything that you've done, but because you have trusted in Christ and Christ alone as your Savior and Lord. Nathaniel just did a book report on Dwight D. Eisenhower. And I do remember Billy Graham saying this, that uh, Eisenhower in his last days, called for Billy Graham. And, and he said to Billy Graham, tell me the gospel one more time. I just want to be sure. And one of the last words that, I, that, that President Eisenhower, General Eisenhower said on his deathbed was, God, I'm ready, take me home. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But you know what? The spirit of God so filled Stephen that like his Lord, he says, Lord, Lay not this sin to their charge. He offers them forgiveness. As, as stones are, are pelted at him and, and, and rocks are crushing his head, he's praying out, Lord, forgive them. He made sure before he left this earthly life that everything was right with those around him and he didn't want to hold that sin against them and he didn't want the Lord to. And it says here that he fell asleep. Did you know that that is the way that the believers in Jesus Christ's death is described throughout Scripture? Remember that in John chapter 11 and verse 11, he says concerning Lazarus who had died, I'm going to awake him out of sleep. And you say, well, that's referring to the soul, soul sleep. No, it's not. The soul doesn't sleep. The word for resurrection means to wake up or to sit up. The soul is always alive. Sleep is referring to the body. You know, when a Christian dies, uh, it's, it's a reference to, if you would, like the body falling asleep, not the soul. And what happens when we fall asleep? When we fall asleep, for the most part, depending on our age and our bodies, it's painless, it's calm, it's peaceful, but it's also temporary. I go that I might wake him out of sleep. One day, if you die before the Lord returns first, he will wake you out of sleep. You will already be in his presence, but he's going to come to reunite you with your body. But lest you fear that and say, who wants to go back to that old broken down thing of a body? It's going to be a glorified body. It's going to be a resurrected body. And here you have the first Christian martyr with many more that would follow from that point forward. Chuck Swindoll said this, when death is near, the Lord offers courage, not necessarily escape. He also said this, when separated from this life, the Christian, the Christian is welcomed home, not rejected. And here in Stephen, you have a picture of a person who is totally sold out to God and it resulted in his earthly life being taken from him. But he didn't, he didn't lose, he won. There were two trials that happened on that day, but only one really counted. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, God says, if God be for us, who can be against us? See, God's plan will include one day 
his people being vindicated, his people being glorified, his people being resurrected and given an eternal state with him to enjoy forever. One last verse I'll have you turn to and we'll conclude. It comes from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we read these words. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now Paul is likening our earthly journey and life to like living in a tent. You ever go camping and stay a night in a tent? I did it once and I'm never doing it again. Because it's uncomfortable, but you know what? A tent, if you would, is temporary. It's not permanent. For this, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. For indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would... Uh, be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And get this, he who prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage and we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You ever play that game, would you rather? Put it in this context. Would you rather just remain here in this earthly life as great and as grand as it might be, or would you one day want to be with your Savior Jesus? See, because that's who awaits us at the end and God receives the believer in the end. That's one of the lessons of this passage for us. He doesn't reject us. He doesn't put us in a holding place to determine whether or not we, we can enjoy his presence forever. He's already done that through Christ on the cross. And if we're in Jesus, that is our final destiny, our final home. But Paul says, until that day, so we make it our... Uh, we, we, so whether we are at home or a way we make it our uh, aim to please him. Because one day we're going to have to answer for the life that we've lived in this body, verse 10. God receives the believer in the end. I would say, my friend, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, take comfort, take heart in this reality and the lesson that we see in Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the testimony of this life of Stephen that was lived well, that was lived for you. And while from a, a natural standpoint, it might look like this was a, a great loss, and I'm sure that him not being in the body of believers and ministering was a loss in one sense. It was so much more a gain. In fact, Lord Jesus, you have said, what does it profit one if he gains the whole world and yet loses and forfeits his own soul? And what would a person give in exchange for their soul? 
We're thankful, Lord Jesus Christ, that you gave yourself in exchange for us that we might be forgiven, that we may be made right with God, that we might have a purpose in this earthly life and a certainty and a future in eternity when our earthly journey comes to an end. Father, help us to take comfort and courage and encouragement from your word today. And help us, Lord, to stand firm in Christ and in the faith, regardless of what it may cost us. Because, Lord, in the end, you certainly are worth it. For we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.